Let's talk about Acts. Um, so the author of Acts, Acts was written by who? Paul. Luke. Luke. <laughs> uh, so you guys talked about Luke a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go into all of that, um, but we'll talk about kind of the Acts piece of it. Um, and I will head to some of it because you talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't. So I'll talk about it some. So in Luke, you know, it says, uh, many have undertaken to write an orderly account, an account of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Um, but I thought it good to write an account for you, Theophilus. Um, so I interviewed eyewitnesses and wrote it down. And that's how Luke begins. Acts uh, begins very similarly, but it begins with, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Um, so this is clearly picking up where he left off. So that's why we link Acts and Luke um, together. Uh, another couple of interesting things about Luke. I don't, I don't know exactly how much you talked about this a couple weeks ago. Probably at least some. Um, but there's a handful of passages in the New Testament that talk about Luke. Um, I think Colossians and Philemon, maybe if I'm remembering right, is where Luke is mentioned. One of them talks about him being a doctor. Um, the other ones just talk about him traveling with Paul. We'll see in Acts where it talks about whoever this author is traveling with Paul. So there's a link. And then another interesting thing about language of Luke and Acts, the Greek, the level of like Greek writing in Luke and Acts is really, really sophisticated relative to the rest of the New Testament. All the New Testament is, is good writing, but <clears throat> Luke and Acts in particular are like pretty difficult to understand. So like even in my Greek classes in college, we were like, well, we're not going to translate those. Like in Greek 3, those are, those are tough. Let's do simpler stuff. They're, like, they're pretty hard. Um, and when you read them, it's like, yeah, I don't understand all those words. There's a lot of words that are only used in Luke and Acts that even if you studied it, it's like, I don't, you don't usually see that kind of writing. You know, it would be like the difference between reading an email that I, that I wrote you know, or something like that versus like reading a Shakespeare play. It's like, oh, those are different categories of writing. Same language. I can understand it different category you know it's that kind of way when you read Luke and Acts and they're both are that way um, and so that's where like again they're written by the same kind of person and then if you link like whoever Luke was is called a doctor so he would have been pretty educated that's the kind of person who can write like this plus there's a couple words in Luke and Acts when it talks about Jesus's healings that he does or um, Peter's healing that he does in Acts 3 that's not just like, and then he was healed. A lot of times in the New Testament, that word is the same word for saved, which is interesting when you talk about another time. But it says somebody, if somebody was healed of their disease, it just says they were saved. I'm like, interesting. That's the same word as like salvation saved. I said another time, another time. Sometimes Luke and Luke and Acts uses a word that's more of like, would have been found in medical dictionaries, like medical terminology for like their ankles were strengthened and so he was able to walk. I'm like that's a, it's a word that would be used specifically in that kind of context. So again, it's like this is a guy who elsewhere in the New Testament says is a doctor writing at a high level that all just kind of cohesively makes sense. I think it's cool to think about somebody like that putting this together. Is that all making sense? Um, <clears throat> okay, the next one, the date, um, maybe like 62, 64, somewhere in that ballpark. Kind of depends on when Mark was written. If Luke was written, Luke and Acts were written after Mark, right? So Mark would have been somewhere in early 60. Luke could have been somewhere in early 60. I think it's all somewhere in that 64 or before. So I don't remember the number I gave you for Mark. Sometimes in the 60s. So yeah, sometimes in the 60s for Mark. So if Mark is like, some people say 59. You know, Mark is 59, 60, 61. Luke and Acts come shortly after that. But I think before 
uh, Nero's persecution in 64. I think that's what makes sense for these things cohesively together, but you could convince me of a handful of things. I think that's what makes sense. So somewhere in 62. Um, Paul dies somewhere around 64, probably somewhere between 64 and 68 is when Paul died. It's hard to say exactly. There's different opinions about that. Um, but when Acts ends, Paul hasn't died yet. And I'm guessing if Paul had died, Acts would have written about it. You know, it would have shown. I don't, I don't think they would have hid from that. So if Paul dies somewhere around 64 or after, then it makes sense for Acts to be before that. Does that make any sense? Um, okay, some major themes and important features. This one I think is super cool. <clears throat> the mirror ministries of Peter and Paul. The mirror ministries of Peter and Paul. And you can add on there, and Jesus, um, which is pretty neat. So if you compare in Luke and Acts, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Peter, the ministry of Paul, of course there's going to be similarities. They're preaching the same message. You know, they care about the same things. But there's like some, some pretty cool specific things that happen um, just like one another. It's similar to how um, if you read like in First and Second Kings, Elijah has his prophetic ministry. And then right after him, who's the next guy who kind of takes over for Elijah? Sure. Elisha. And Elijah and Elisha have so many things in common, like very specifically paralleled, that it's kind of showing like this guy took the mantle. You know, he's carrying the baton. It's the same way from Jesus to Peter to Paul that Luke is clearly trying to show us. Peter continued what Jesus started. Paul continued what Peter and Jesus started. They're all carrying this out. And again, the invitation, so what are you going to do? You know, I think we're invited into, like, the story ends with Paul in prison. So it went from Jesus to Peter to Paul. Now that guy is arrested. Who's going to carry the torch? You want to? I think that's kind of the invitation, which is pretty cool. So um, Acts 1 through 12 largely talks about Peter and the stuff that he was doing to, to lead and build the church. Um, Paul, Saul is converted in Acts chapter 9, so there's a little bit of like, here's Saul. But his ministry doesn't kick off till chapter 13. So chapters 13 through 28 is largely Paul's ministry. So 1 through 12 and then 13 through 28 are the divisions. But let me tell you, just these are just a few examples, but it's so cool to see things Jesus did, things Peter did, and things Paul did. So in Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man. In Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a lame man. In Acts chapter 14, Paul heals a lame man. So early on in their ministries, it's like, okay, this guy's getting started in ministry. Here's one of the first things he does. Somebody can't walk, they meet Jesus, they meet Peter, they meet Paul, and he can walk. That's how they start. Um, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises a dead, um, I think it's a dead girl. <clears throat> I don't want to tell you something that's not true. Um Oh, it's a widow's son. So it's a widow's son um, who's died. So Jesus raises this boy from the dead. And then in Acts chapter 9, um, in Acts chapter 9, Peter raises someone who has died. Um, Or a a paralytic who'd been, uh, let's see. Trying to find what I'm trying to tell you about, sorry. Uh, it's Dorcas. So Dorcas had died, and Peter heals her, and she raises from the dead, right? And then in Acts chapter 20, Paul raises somebody who died from the dead. Do you remember who that was? His name was Eutychus. And Paul was preaching late at night, and he fell asleep and fell out of a window and died. And then Paul walked outside and raised him from the dead. 
And my ACT teacher in college said, Eutychus too, if you fell out the window. That's how I remember his name all the time, Eutychus. So Jesus raises somebody from the dead. Peter raises somebody from the dead. Paul raises somebody from the dead. In Luke chapter 8, in Luke chapter 8, um, that's the story of when the woman comes up behind Jesus in the crowd and grabs the hem of his garment and she's healed. In Acts chapter 5, um, somebody like touches Peter's shadow and they're healed. In Acts chapter 19, somebody gets like a handkerchief that Paul had used and they're healed, which is crazy. Um, but all, those are just a few examples of like the very specific kinds of things that happen at like similar spots in their ministry that I think Luke is writing on, per, again, a very educated, thoughtful, trained, I set out to write an orderly account for you. Look what Jesus did. Look what Peter did. Look what Paul did. All of these ministries are tied directly to him and they're carrying out the mission he started. Isn't that neat to see those specific parallels? Um, I think it's really cool. Um, next bullet point, the spiritually powerful, spiritually powerful and theologically important beginnings of the church. Spiritually powerful and theologically important beginnings of the church. So Acts chapter 2, you know, it starts with um, the day of Pentecost. Like Jesus has ascended. They're all meeting together, praying. The Holy Spirit falls. Um, there's like flames sitting all around them and they feel like urged to preach. They're preaching the gospel. People hear it in their own language. Thousands of people are converted. That's how it begins. And Peter, in Peter's sermon, he says there's this passage in Joel that is being fulfilled right now. Joel said there would be a day when I pour out my spirit and people hear and are saved. That's what's happening right now. So that's like a, you know, God's presence coming, even though they thought God's presence had just left. So, like, there's spiritual power here. There's miracles happening here. People hearing the gospel in their own language. There's so much power in that. Thousands are converted. Um, but it's also theologically really important because it's, like, fulfillment of a prophecy. Looking forward to, like, what people would have thought is the end of time, the conclusion of history, the last age that needed to begin, Peter says, has begun. Like, it, that passage in Joel says, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit. So Peter says, the last days have come. This is the last thing that needs to happen. Jesus came and the gospel happened. So join us. This is it. This is the climax of history. That's what Peter's saying. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So spiritually powerful, theologically important. Something changed that day in um, the spiritual realm and in theology. Like that was the beginning of the church. Um, but in chapter 10, chapter 10, Peter, that's when Peter has the vision of the sheep being let down from heaven with all the unclean animals in it. Do you remember that? Anybody? So Peter's sleeping. He's in Joppa, I think. And the sheet comes down from heaven. And in his dream, uh, he hears a voice saying, take and eat. And he's like, I'm not supposed to eat those things. They're unclean. And then he has the dream again. It's supposed to take and eat. So he's like wrestling with what that's supposed to mean. And then somebody comes to the door and says, this centurion wants you to come to his house. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't supposed to probably go to a house like that and share a meal with people like that because they're Gentiles. But bringing in the back of his ears probably is, take and eat. What I have called clean is now clean. It's God saying something has changed. It's time to go to the Gentiles. Like, let's break this barrier. Jesus hinted at that and pushed at that. But then this is Jesus saying, it's time to break the barrier. Go to the Gentiles. That's what happens in chapter 10. Then when Cornelius and his family um, are converted, then the Holy Spirit comes. They're speaking in tongues and understanding in tongues. And they're baptized. So it's the same things that happen with the crowd of Jews happen with Cornelius and those Gentiles. That's not just a random thing, because that's the only time that it happens quite that way in Acts. It's not every conversion in Acts does not have 
spirit falling, speaking in tongues. That's, it's not every conversion. Every conversion in Acts has, involves them talking about the resurrection. Um, more often it talks about water baptism than it talks about other things. But Acts 2 and Acts 10 talk about the Holy Spirit comes in power. Speaking in tongues takes place. This miracle of the Holy Spirit. They're baptized. Something new has begun. So what's significant about those two instances being the ones that happens? You can do it. The first one, who is Peter preaching to? It's the Jews. The Jews. And then the second one is the Gentiles. So I think when Luke writes these stories, yeah, it's, it's not saying every time the gospel is preached, it's going to be a miraculous outpouring. That's not what he's saying. Because there's other times in here the gospel is preached and that's not what happens. But the first time it's preached to the crowd of Jews by the apostles, the Holy Spirit validates it. The first time it's preached to the Gentiles by the apostles, the Holy Spirit validates it. So there's spiritual power and this theological shift that marks both of these groups of people have a place at this table. Now let's go carry out the mission. Sometimes it'll happen miraculously. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll be simple. Sometimes it'll be huge. Sometimes it'll be crazy. Sometimes it'll be really normal. But both of these groups are part of it. That's the point of the stories. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so those are those two big things um, that I think kind of kick off the church and what it's about. Uh, third, persecution and boldness. Persecution and boldness. This happens a lot in Acts. Um, maybe my favorite example of it is in um, chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested because they healed that um, beggar outside the temple. Um, they're kind of questioned, and they just don't back down. Um, salvation's found in no one else, they say. There's no other name of heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Um, and then chapter 4, verse 13 um, this is the, the Sanhedrin, are, um, or not the Sanhedrin, yeah, the Sanhedrin, are questioning them. And it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus, which is just such a good verse. Um, I would love for that to be true of me, not to be like, when they talked to Ben, and he was so brilliant, then they realized he must have something good to say. It's like, no, when they saw the way you are, when they see the way you interact, your courage, your boldness, your clarity, not that they would say, wow, you must have had really good teachers or you must have really worked hard to get that smart, mm-hmm. but you've spent time with a power that we can't fully comprehend that's made you different than anybody else we've interacted with. And I would love for that to be true of all of us. Um, then they're released because they kind of are stuck. The Sanhedrin is, they don't really know what to do. Um, and then... Uh, let's look at verse 23, chapter 4, verse 23. I'll just read a little bit to you. It says, On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Do you hear in there some of what we talked about in Mark a minute ago? That there's, they've just been arrested, beaten, mocked, persecuted, and released with a warning not to do this anymore. And then they're like, Scripture said nations were going to dislike you. That's exactly what Herod and Pontius Pilate just did. They're persecuting us. But they say, I love that in verse 28, they just did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Mm-hmm. None of this that's happening to us is outside of what God has 
intended, what God allows, and what God can control. They think they're powerful, but they're, they're actually like fulfilling prophecy. These kings who are trying to be powerful are actually fulfilling what God said would happen. Isn't that crazy? That's just such a like subversive mindset of like, I know you think you're powerful. You have nothing. Centuries ago, God predicted this. So do your worst. You know, he called his own shot. In verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Isn't that cool? They threatened, if you keep doing this, we're going to rescue again. So it's like, God, consider their threats and keep us safe so we can do it. That's not what they say. Consider their threats and change their minds. That's not what they say. Although I'm sure they would have taken both of those things. They say, consider their threats and enable us to speak with boldness. Yeah. Sorry, this is going to kind of go back to the Gentiles and Jews. So mm-hmm. you keep on going with what you were saying. Okay, all right. Uh, it's good. Then verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders to the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So I love that they're filled with the Holy Spirit and boldness because that's what they asked for. Like, we're facing persecution. Give us more boldness to keep going in the face of it. Uh, I love that. There's another place. I think it's later in chapter 5. Let me find it um, because it's worth saying. They were arrested again in chapter 5, and the, the Sanhedrin is like, we told you not to do this. That's verse 28. And then verse 9, Peter just says, we must obey God rather than men. It's like, I know you told us not to. I don't really care. Um, and then let me find it because it's another, just such a good one. Um, look at verse 41, chapter 5, verse 41. They're beaten again. They're mocked again. Verse 41, it says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that amazing? I think we spend so much time, and I, you know, I understand. I don't think we should be like, God, persecute us. We want to be persecuted. You know, I don't think it's, it's, we should like, you know, just like publicly, foolishly move into China and see if we could be persecuted because it'd be such an honor. Like, that's not, that's not how this works. But these people aren't trying to avoid it. They're not trying to hide from it. Sometimes Paul runs away. If he knows like they're going to arrest me and kill me, well, I can get away. I'm going to leave. You know, he, he's not like, seeking it out but they're also not praying against it happening isn't that interesting um and i i've heard lots of different you know interviews or read things that a lot of people would say like people believers in china or believers in iran that i interacted with a couple of weeks ago wouldn't say we need to pray that this stops because the church is gonna is suffering they would say pray for courage pray for opportunity pray for more bibles pray you know that's what they would pray for and I'm sure they would love the persecution to stop. But that's not the primary thing. The persecution isn't the primary enemy. The primary enemy is Satan deceiving people. Yeah. You know, so we need boldness to preach the gospel. That's the answer. We don't need persecution to be illegal. We need the gospel. You know? I just think it's so hard for us to get. And I hear, I hear a lot. And again, I kind of understand. Like, I don't want persecution to happen. Right? But there's so much, it just seems like sometimes with so much fear, they're like, guys, persecution's coming to America. <sighs> Man, it's like, well, maybe. What are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Are we going to like vote different? Or are we going to hide? Or are we going to preach? Because there's one right answer. Mm-hmm. All of them might be okay to do. But there's one really correct answer, mm-hmm. you know, and that's preach. Um, so I love that here. Just their boldness and courage is like so convicting, so convicting. So, 
I'm listening, but I'm going to be doing a couple things. So okay. keep going. So in 10, you're talking about how Cornelius is, like, he was told to take Peter, and him, and that's kind of like the shooting of the Gentiles, like the gospel going to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. But then, like, there's this little nugget in chapter 8. It's verse 14 through 17. And a lot of people actually use this as a defense of that, um, the Holy Spirit in baptism, it's like the Holy Spirit isn't connected to baptism. Anyway, yeah. there's, that's how I actually found it. Okay. But, and after kind of going through it, this is showing that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit and the gospel was set foot into the Gentiles before Cornelius. Because it talks about how Peter and John went down to Samaria because they heard about a baptism happening with Gentiles and that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And so why is Cornelius the landmark for saying the Gentiles finally got the gospel and stuff like that whenever stuff like this had already happened? Yeah. I just don't understand like why chapter 8 is looked over a lot. Yeah, that's good. I, I think that's a good point. Um, a couple of reasons I would say that don't, there's going to be detailed stuff that's a little off. But I think what Luke is trying to present is the big miraculous thing. So, like, the Samaritans would have been like half breeds, is kind of how they would have been okay. looked at. Yeah. So, they are kind of Jewish. So, I think that's part of it is it's like this is clearly outside of true Israel, but it's not all the way to like Romans. Romans. You know, so I think that's the the biggest okay. distinction, and it, it mirrors chapter one verse eight where it says, "Jesus says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth." Okay. So I think that's what he's trying to show too is like Jesus said, "Start here, Pentecost, then you're going to go a little further, so chapter eight, then it's going to hit Rome, interesting. Okay. Uh, and and beyond." So I think that's the biggest thing, and then in chapter ten, the Cornelius one is tied to Peter's dream. So I think. Yeah, it's like it starts happening, but then Peter has the dream of, like, we're opening the floodgates here. So I think that's the bigger move. Yeah, but it's good. It's a good point. What are you guys laughing at? Your Bowser David. I like the Ramsey one. There will be a day when you guys see. One of, my, one of my hidden joys is making memes to respond to people. With things, so you'll see someday. Someday, it's not low key as you do it. Oh, I know. I don't always make them, sometimes I make my own because there's just nothing out there that accurately captures what you need to convey. You know, and Canva Pro that's what Canva Pro was made for, I think. That's why. Okay, I want to tell you a story about my trip because we're talking about persecution. So, these are people I got to meet in Turkey. Um, I won't tell you their names because I think we're not supposed to. But they're amazing. Um, so we got to have lunch with them. They're from Iran. It's illegal to, to convert to Christianity in Iran, to be Christian in Iran, to have a Bible. It's illegal to have a Bible in Iran. There's a, at the border between Turkey and Iran, there's like a huge painting that they have like on the building of a Bible. Like the, the version of the Bible that actually this ministry translated and produced, they like painted that one on the thing. And it says it is illegal to bring this into Iran. I mean, like they're, you know, it's a big deal. So this, um, this is a father and mother and their daughter. The daughter's on the right. 
and they were in Iran. They have an older son who became a believer, I think first, and then the parents became believers, and then the daughter on the right was the last one to uh, become a believer. Um, their brother, the brother, had moved to, had left Iran, fled Iran, and lives in Germany now. Um, and he, from outside Germany, is helping oversee Bible distribution inside Iran. Um, and again, it's illegal, you know. So he's, like, got tons of contacts all over. None of them know each other. They may know, like, who he is, but they probably don't know where he is or maybe even his real name because it's not safe. So he's, like, on the outside in this other country pulling all these crazy. Isn't that awesome? It's just, like, this really happened, like, recently. Now this is going on. It's crazy. Um, so he, the brother was having her sometimes help with that stuff. He would ask her, like, hey, could you do this? And she wasn't even a believer yet, but she's just, like, trying to help her brother. I think she wasn't adamantly Muslim. It was more cultural. So she would help sometimes and then not because she'd be scared and kind of in and out. She didn't even fully know what she was doing. She was just trying to help her brother. Um, then eventually, I think through his talking, through her parents, she comes to Christ, accepts the gospel, is a believer, now realizes what her brother's doing and is like all in on it. At the same time, she is engaged to a Muslim guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he finds out she's become a Christian. All this is very, it's so, I have so many questions about how all this works that I just, you know, may not ever get answered. But she's engaged to this guy. He finds out she's a Christian, so he divorces her. I, so I don't know if they'd been married yet or engaged still or, or what, but he's done. Her, his family wants nothing to do with them. They were awful to her. So, but they've got like a wedding registry and an apartment they were going to live in and all these gifts. So give rid of the gifts. He's out of the picture, but now they have this extra apartment that no one's living in. So they started using it basically as a warehouse to store Bibles. <laughs> so it, I think it became like the largest storehouse of Bibles in Iran that this lady now is running. And her husband left her because she's converted. And now she's just running Bible distribution. Her brother's helping pull the strings, other people. So she would go, she said sometimes in the middle of the night, she'd go to three different cities. So just like load up her car and put a box of Bibles somewhere that somebody would tell her, go leave it in this location. She'd go put it somewhere, leave it, go to a different town. And she didn't know who got them because if she knew who got them, then she could be tied, you know, they could be all tied. So she didn't know who's getting them. She didn't know who's sending her. I just know and put the box here and I leave. Mm-hmm. So she's doing that for a while. Sending Bibles everywhere, storing up Bibles. Crazy. Then um, one day, somehow, the police find them. So they come in and arrest her and her parents. Blindfold them each. So they know they're all taken, but they don't know where they're going. Um, she is taken to solitary confinement. Each of them are taken to solitary confinement. They don't know what's happening to the others. Um, her dad, it was winter time. They left her dad outside as part of his punishment or whatever. Got frostbite. He's had to have his toes amputated. Um, and he's telling us this kind of with a, like, it's sad, but it's what you do, you know. Um, her mom didn't really say much about her experience. They were in prison, I think, for five or six days, uh, her parents were. Um, she, the daughter, was in prison for, it ended up like five and a half months, uh, almost completely solitary confinement. Um, there was part of it where she got so sick that they had to put her in another cell, like with a couple of people who could help make sure she didn't die. But she was close to dying. Tons of infections, malnourished. They would beat her every day, yell at her every day, tell her lies about all these people who were, you know, turning her in or turning their back on the gospel or whatever. None of it's true. But they're just trying to get her to name other names. Some of it, I'm sure she knew other Christians, but some of it she didn't know. You know, so she just said nothing. Just said nothing. And they're 
interrogating her and trying to get more information out of her. Um, <clears throat> eventually, they, you know, interrogating, interrogating, interrogating. They say, um, they give her a death sentence. They're going to hang her. And then say, but you can get a lawyer to represent you. But they can't find lawyers to represent Christians because it's very clearly illegal. Like, there, it's not like there's a loophole, you know. So she can't even find a lawyer to represent her. So she's kind of working on it, trying to figure out. At this point, she doesn't know where her parents are. They could be dead. They could still be in prison. She has no idea. She has a dream one night that there she's in Antalya, Turkey, which is, I found out, kind of the Cancun of the Middle East. It's beautiful. She has a dream that they're there. She meets her parents there, and everything's okay. Wakes up, and that's all, you know, and then goes through the whole thing again. So then she's trying to figure out somebody to represent her. Not sure if she's going to get out. Then they come to her one day and say, you're released on bail. Like she had a death sentence, and they just release her. So she's like, as I look back on it, they just were confused. Like it's only a miracle. They let me out of prison. And it was supposed to be a short time and a retrial or something like that. So she gets out of prison, almost immediately buys a plane ticket, and leaves for Turkey to try to go to Antalya to see, you know, if her parents are there. And she's like, I used my passport. Like, I'm arrested and have a death sentence. I used my passport to buy a plane ticket and get out of the country. No one stopped me. Wow. It's insane. So she gets to Antalya, finds her parents. They have migrated there as well. Wow. They got released after five days, bought a plane ticket within 30 minutes, and were gone. Same kind of thing. How did they get out of the country? Who knows? So they meet up in Antalya, uh, live there for a couple years. Now they live in a different town in Turkey. Um, but now she is, um, like, digitally, virtually, discipling believers in Iran um, and meets with several of them, you know, secretly, has like an alias and all that stuff, and is doing some of what her brother did, like overseeing some Bible distribution inside Iran. Um, <clears throat> she's been gone now for three years. She's been in Turkey for three years. Um, so again, so recently, this is how the world is operating. Um, she would go back to Iran today if she could. She's like, I know if I went back, they'd probably arrest me. A lot of people don't want me to go. I kind of just want to do it. Like, she's just ready to go back. It's like faced imprisonment. It was awful. Like, she's crying, telling us the story. You know, it's not like a, it's real trauma. Mm -hmm. She'd go back. Um, she said that shortly after she got in prison, this is where, like, this story is just, you know, when it says they, they rejoiced that they were kind of worthy for suffering disgrace for the name. She, while she was in prison alone, she said one of the things she thought was, when I became a Christian, and, you know, was doing this Bible work. She said, I would have people tell me, like, you're so amazing that you're doing this, you know, so courageous. And she's like, I'm not really. Like, the disciples were arrested. You know, the disciples were, like, persecuted. I'm not facing that. I'm just giving out Bibles. So then while she's in prison, she remembers that mm -hmm. and says, God, now I'm really one of your disciples. Mm -hmm. Like, what an honor. That's her perspective. And she's, like, ready to keep doing it and keep discipling. So drastic story. You know, it's like not all of us are going to live that. It's so hard to hear things like that and not just think, like, what am I doing? Why, why do I do anything that I do, <laughs> you know? So those things are so drastic, almost to the point of, like, not being helpful, you know? But I think where it can stir our heart is where it's the most helpful. And just let the courage of somebody like this, of a family like this, the reality of that, just open your eyes to the world in a bigger way. Um, and remember, this kind of stuff is not just Acts stuff. It's still happening. Just because it didn't happen here, it's still happening. Um, but people like that would rejoice that they're kind of worthy for suffering disgrace for the name. And just let that courage uh, inspire you, challenge you. I know it does me. Okay, so that's one story. Let's keep talking about Acts. Um, the next big um, feature in Acts I want to point out is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. 
62 times in Acts. That's that next blank. 62 times in Acts the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Uh, which is a whole lot. 28 chapters, 62 times. So that's, you know, like two and a half times a chapter or whatever. That's a lot. Um, some people have even said that the book of Acts, it's called Acts of the Apostles, is like the long name. People say, like, it should be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's really who's driving this narrative, which I think is true. Um, this is interesting, just kind of aside. Um, I, I think of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, like, that's kind of a weird name for a book. You know, it doesn't, I just think, honestly, oh, the Bible. At this period in history, there were a lot of books titled that. So you could get, like, the Acts of Nero, Caesar, the Acts of, you know, whoever. That would be like a title for a book you're going to write about somebody doing stuff. So I just think it's interesting. It's kind of a Luke adding his book to the collection of literature in the day. You know, if you want to read the acts of all these people, what about the acts of these people? It's going to blow your mind. You know, it's kind of a normal book title. Um, the next one, the church is a family slash community. Um, there's a lot of those things. Acts 2.42 is, is a real famous one. You know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayer. Um, they gave to one another as they had need. Um, Acts chapter 4 talks about people selling their possessions so that nobody had lack, um, which I think is a, you know, huge. Acts chapter 12, Peter gets out of prison miraculously and goes to a, a house in the community where people are meeting and having a prayer service like a family. What would you guys miss? Can I help? Can you say it again? A church as what? A family slash community. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is just a major theme in Acts. And they had to be that way, right? Like they're facing major persecution like these people here they have to know some other Christians because how else are you going to live? You have to be able to take care of each other. Um, yeah, I just think finding ways to do that as people is a big deal. Finding ways to, like, even things as simple as, you guys know the name Shane Claiborne? Um, I may have you read one of his books in January. We'll see. Um, he talks a lot about, like, living in community, really, and what that could mean and how it could liberate us from so many things. But even things as simple as, like, you know, I know how many Christians live on my street. How many people that go to our church live in my neighborhood? Dozens. We all have our own weed eater, and we all have our own lawnmower, and we all have our own power washer. Those things are expensive. We don't need to. Why we give our money doing that? Like, why don't we share? I don't need my power washer every weekend. You know, someone else could borrow it. Even things like that to think through. Like as Christians, I don't need my own everything. What if we shared? What if I got rid of this so that I have more money to give to that, and then we could share and. That would also get us talking more and probably get us sharing meals more. Wouldn't that be good for us? Mm-hmm. I think um, Acts is so good at, they just talk about it normal. Like they sold a field so they could give the money to people so that nobody in the community was poor. That's a big deal. What if we did that? You know, that would be amazing. That would change the world quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just opening, Acts helps me open my mind again to wanting to live that way. You know, it really, it's real. It's a real possibility and will really make a difference. Um, yeah. One, so kind of on that, second years at least have heard me talk about this probably a bunch of times. I don't know if first years have yet. You might have. One idea I have someday for the church sometime is to have like a year of Jubilee or a weekend of Jubilee. Have I talked about this first years? You okay. I think it would be awesome if we just did that and said like, hey, a lot of you have more than you need. Some of you have property you don't need. Some of you have a third car you never use. What if you brought that asset, brought that money to the table? Some of you are in debt that you'll never get out of. Some of you are behind on payments you can never recover from. Bring that need to the church. Let's balance some things a little bit. If it wouldn't be a total, like you couldn't live that way 100%, I think it would be complicated. But what if we just had a weekend where we said, hey, just bring your need. 
and bring your excess and let's see how God washes it out. Wouldn't that be cool? And I think the kinds of things that could be done would be unbelievable. I just think it could be really neat. Someday it's going to happen somewhere. Uh, another big defining uh, characteristic of Acts is the missionary journeys. Um, so that's what Paul does. You know, Paul becomes a Christian pretty quickly. He starts traveling around um, and spreading the gospel places. So there's three of them, three kind of specific long journeys. You can read about Acts 13 to 14, Acts 15 to 18, and Acts 18 to 21 is when Paul takes those um, journeys and goes around spreading the gospel in different places. So what's super helpful is when you're reading the New Testament letters to go find somewhere in those missionary journeys where Paul visited those places and read the story of when he first went to Philippi. That's going to inform how you read Philippians or the time he spent in Corinth or Thessalonica and how that influences those books. Uh, it's a huge, huge help um, to go back through and read. Uh, the next one is the we passages. The we passages. Um, so those, all those are kind of listed out there. Those are the sections of Acts where the narrative shifts from third person. Then Paul went, then they went, then they went, then they went to first person. And then we went to the synagogue. Um, so that's where it's like, oh, Luke's traveling with them, um, which is pretty cool to, to read those first person kinds of things and when he stays behind and when he travels more. Um, so that's where you can read about those things. Okay, here's a whole list of important passages in Acts, which is like most of the book, right? There's tons of great ones. Um, there's one I'm going to point out to you because I got to go there last week. So, more pictures. Um, let's see which one I want to show you first. Okay, this is the Parthenon in Athens, um, which is a temple basically to Athena, um, but it's huge. So you can see like how big that is relative to people. It used to have a roof on it, like a big, big, big roof. Some of it was messed up during like the, the Persian Wars, I think it was, um, when Greece was fighting with the Turks and um, a lot of wars in that area. They would use this to store ammunition. And one, one time there was like a lightning strike and a lot of it blew up. And it blew up, isn't that crazy? So it blew up a lot of the roof. So this used to be like really bright white and painted like gold and blue, big majestic roof on top, um, and it's huge. And this is up on what's called the Acropolis, um, which basically means like the high point of town or the edge of town. So every major city had an Acropolis, and it was where they kind of built a fortress, like this is the high place. Um, so they have this huge temple to Athena, and um, the word Parthenos in Greek is like a virgin. So Athena is like the representative of that, but this would have been a temple to that whole idea and fill in the blanks of what all that represents. There's other little temples around um, in this area. I'm pointing over here. It would have been like over here. Um, I have little temples um, to different gods. I think I sent you guys that picture of the little altar to Augustus, which is out front of this, which is like on the back side over here. And they would have had that temple to Augustus. So when the Romans are kind of like, you can keep your big temple because we think that's cool. As long as you worship me first, then you can have your thing. So the Romans kind of did that places. Um, so Paul went to Athens in Acts 17. You can read about it there. Um, let me show you another Athens picture. This isn't specifically mentioned in Acts, but I think this is super cool. Um, so down here is kind of off the side of the Acropolis. You can't really tell kind of how steep and far down that is, but again, the Acropolis is the high point. This is ruins of another temple that's at the base of that to a god named Asclepius, um, who is like a god of healing. 
Um, his symbol was a snake like curled around a post, which is still like the medical symbol today. You know, you've seen that. Um, so that was this god. So what people would do is they would make like castings of whatever body part or piece of them was sick or ill or lame out of plaster and bring it to that temple and leave it there as like their prayer to be healed. So they found, you can't see them in this picture, but they found there like tons of plaster hands and feet and whatever, which is weird, but real. They would do that. Um, so that's at the base of the Parthenon. Doesn't have anything to do with the story, but I think it's interesting. It does emphasize what Paul talks about in Acts 17 mm-hmm. um, when he says, I see that you're very religious. Do you remember that story? You even have a temple to an unknown God. Um, so that's what Paul says to them in Acts 17. And the Greeks would have had that. They would have had tons of gods everywhere. They would have had little sculptures of gods everywhere. Up that picture of the Parthenon I showed you, up there they would have had tons of other little temples and little statues and little gods and all kinds of things. And it was huge and majestic, like huge. You could see it from so far away because it's on the high point of the city. So it's way up on this hill in the middle of the city. Everything else slopes way down. So you can see this gigantic temple saying, we have named this city after the goddess Athena. She gets this gigantic, amazing, huge temple. That, and the, inside that temple was like a 40, I think, foot mm-hmm. gold statue of her. Huge. Mm-hmm. And that's where she lived, was in the temple on the high point of the city in the beautiful, amazing marble structure, right? Paul, um, yeah, let me show you the picture and then I'll, then I'll tell you about it. So this is the entrance to a place called Mars Hill, if you've heard of Mars Hill which is right next to the Acropolis. So the Acropolis is the big hill with the huge temple. Just a little ways down, here's Mars Hill. And that was the place that was kind of the like, we're, we're above the city. Like from here, you can kind of see the city down in the valley. But we're not as high up as the Parthenon, as the Acropolis where our God lives. But this is a place where we come and have important philosophical conversations because we feel important and superior to the city. We're above everybody else, and we're kind of in the shadow of the gods. This is an appropriate place to have important conversation. Does that make sense? So that's where they would do it. So these are the steps um, that would have led, like back in Paul's day, these are the steps that lead up to Mars Hill. So Paul walked on those steps. Um, You can't walk on them anymore because they're so worn down, like they're too slippery (laughs) to walk on, so they built another staircase. Um, But Paul would have walked up there. So when he's in Athens, um, let's see. I want to make sure before I read this. Okay. Um, so here is then, this is when you're on Mars Hill. Okay, so he would have walked up those steps. Can you see this picture very well? Okay. So you walk up those steps. Those steps are like over here. And you come up here, and you can't see it great in the rock. You can see a little bit here. You see how that's kind of curved around like that? Mm-hmm. The rock is just that way. They didn't, like, build it. But there's a few of those ridges, and that's where people would sit. And the speaker would stand, like, right here when they're going to discuss important ideas. And over there is the Acropolis. Mm-hmm. So that's the entrance. The Parthenon would have been over here. You can see it a little bit right there. But when it had its roof on it and hadn't been collapsed by earthquakes and bombings of the Nazis and lightning strikes, you could see the gold, white temple, mm-hmm. and you're kind of in the base of it here. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's where Paul goes up and is standing. So now let me read to you Paul in Athens. He would have been standing right there eventually. So it says, well, this is uh, eight, Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. 
a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. So those are two opposite philosophies. They're both mad at Paul. <laughs> so they kind of get, at least can unify on the fact that we don't like this guy. Um, they began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. So that's kind of that group of people. And they would have come up here for that meeting. And sat in their little fancy, you know, amphitheater on their rock and said, you have interesting ideas. Why don't you come stand here and talk to us? And we'll decide if we think it's interesting enough. Here in the shadow of the gods, but above the city. Does that all make sense? That's where they're sitting. Have a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, right there. He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Isn't that cool? Standing right there. That's behind him. As he's telling all these philosophers and well-to-do, thoughtful people, God doesn't need something like this to live in. He built this whole thing. That's nothing. You think Athena lives in there? God doesn't live in there. He doesn't need us to build him a temple. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. Think about that too. He's not far from each one of us. They live their whole lives down in the basin, far below this amazing place. They have to hike up the hill to get in there, pay sacrifices to get in there, go worship to get in there, this whole ordeal. He's not far from anyone. You can find him if you want. He's just right here. Uh, for in him, uh, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. So he's taking a known quotation, but twisting it to, to be actually that's what God means. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council and went back down those steps. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So I love that Paul just stands up there and says that. God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And then where does it kind of culminate for him? We're his children. Which, the, you know, we would know if we kind of fill in those gaps. God doesn't dwell there. He dwells here. Mm. So it's like you built this amazing marble structure, painted it. It's gorgeous. It's breathtaking. It's stunning. It's imposing. He doesn't live there. He lives here. And he proved it because he rose from the dead when you guys tried to kill him. Isn't that great? He, he doesn't need something that man's skill makes made out of gold or silver. Athena's over there. 
You maybe even see the gleam off the sun if you look close. He doesn't need us to make something like that. He dwells here. Wild that he just stands up in motions there. Um, so, yeah, standing there for me made that really real. But I think seeing that, just the view of that would be crazy. And the boldness it would take for him to stand up and do that. A lot of these guys would have spent their lives, you know, worshiping there or maybe their dad helped build it or their grandpa would have been more than that more generations than that but they would have been deeply tied to it you know in their lineage this is our place this is our city this is what we're all about we built our lives around this Mm -hmm. and paul says yeah the real god doesn't live there that's like totally shaking to everything about them um and his boldness just to say it is pretty cool so uh yeah i'm excited to share that with you and remember for you that god doesn't dwell there he dwells in you you're his offspring. You're his son. You're his daughter. He wants to live with you. He wants to be known by you. He's not hard to find. You can get him. You can reach him anytime. He's available. You don't have to climb the hill. He's with you. He's not hard to find. And he's glad you're his son. He's glad you're his daughter. So let me pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we can um, study scripture together. I pray that the things we looked at in Mark and in Acts today would be moving, would be helpful, um, would help us to teach people and lead them well. Um, that people, like we talked about earlier, would, would come away from conversations with us, interactions with us, teachings we give, small groups we lead, that they would come away from those things hungry for you and hungry for scripture, not impressed with us. Um, I mean, think in that verse in Acts 17, you know, it says some people became followers of Paul. I wonder if Paul you know, would tell Luke, you should have written that differently. I don't want people to follow me. Um, He wasn't trying to be an impressive philosopher. He was trying to just point people to you. Let that be true of us. God, help us accept and really believe the fact that you don't need something big and elaborate and fancy and impressive to dwell in, but that you made your children to dwell in. Um, So God, we accept your presence with us. We believe it. We need it. And we long for it. Thank you for calling us your children. Um, Thank you for dwelling in us and among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.